0: hey everybody uh we are here for the finale of yet another season of your missing out fellas thank God we got through a third season of the show um, seventy
1: five movies right
0: seventy five uh national film registry films
2: we are at so about what, I think, like eighty episodes
0: We've got yeah, we've got about I think eighty five or eighty-six episodes. Uh if you our episode count on like podcast apps says eighty-eight, but that counts the trailer and like the three minute clip where mm, I tell yeah. people we're doing a greed commentary. What that does mean is that uh, you know, not to skip ahead to looking ahead at season four, but yes, season four will somewhere in it contain episode one hundred.
2: We will, we, sh- we should figure out something special for episode 100, even if it's a specific movie or whatever. Like yeah. Make episode 100, like, nice and not just like, oh, these jerks did a commentary. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Way to talk up our fantastic commentary episodes, Tom. All
2: right, listen, if they're 86 episodes into, if they're 86 episodes into the show, because if you're listening to the finale, you're a fan, you're not a newbie. If you're this deep into the run of the show, you know, I do not like our show, <laughs> even though I do not listen to it. <laughs> you know, what's super fun, folks,
0: is that, uh, you know, between each season, we always give each other notes about things we need to tweak going into the new season and uh, spoilers. <laughs> A note for season four might be, Tom, sound less like you want to die midway through an episode.
2: I have I cannot change that. This That is in God's hands. There are other things going on that are causing these issues.
1: (laughs) Maybe stop Uh, thinking about the Roman Empire, Tom.
2: No, that's the only thing keeping me going. So Tom made a
0: joke about like, well, if you're listening to the finale, that means you're a real fan. But that's not necessarily true. There might be people who are downloading this because it's the most recent episode in the podcast feed or anything like that. Obviously, we take time off in between seasons. Um, What are we doing today? Because we've obviously covered all 25 films of the third year of the registry. Well, this finale, we're going to do a couple things. We're going to talk about what we're looking at in season four and the films we'll be covering then. We're going to talk about what we submitted to the National Film Registry because by this point, we have already sent in our 25 per person submissions to the Library of Congress. So we'll tell you what those are, including a little wild card that Kyle submitted that we don't know about yet. Before we do all that, one thing we do at the end of each season is we do these kind of award style uh superlatives for the twenty five films we have covered in uh season three this is we do uh, a couple little questions up top about you know what we we enjoyed watching so on and so forth and then full on oscar style awards categories now we don't do best picture uh because we're reaching the point where truly how the hell do you compare some of these movies right uh i'll do it i don't give a fuck (laughs) but it is a thing of like how does one uh you know because i think we talked about this once in an earlier finale of like you know in the first season when they're all feature films you could maybe do that but we're reaching a point where it's like i don't know man how do you really do a ranking of like you know, Gertie the Dinosaur versus Lawrence of Arabia. It seems like maybe a weird thing to, to pit against each other. Um, but we are going to do actor, actress, supporting actor, supporting actress, cinematography, all that. And uh, in fact, this year we're doing it a little different because we are going to have our winners and also a runner-up, uh, which allows us to kind of spread the wealth a little more and also have a couple of different answers. Because I don't know if you guys remember last finale, but there were a bunch of points where we kind of had to go Best actors: De Niro and Raging Bull. What are we doing? What are, what are we doing here? What are we? doing?
2: I feel like there's going to be a few of those. I think time. so.
0: At least I will say this, Tom. At least guaranteed for you and me. one, guaranteed at, one. At least for you and me. I can't speak to Kyle because in the past Kyle has pulled out some real curveballs on us.
1: Yeah, I kept mine tight. Um, I got I got one answer each. Well, so well, I well, that's some well, that's what happens.
2: Well, that's what happens when you watch three of the movies. <laughs>
0: No, do you remember last season? You probably don't remember this. Last season, we're doing Best Actor. Do you even need to ask? Last season, we're doing Best Actor, and you go, it's De Niro and Raging Bull, and I go, it's De Niro and Raging Bull, and Kyle goes, John F. Kennedy in primary. It's like, all right, well, that's Kyle. So, without further ado, Kyle, why don't you kick us off with some of our sort of prelude questions before we get to the awards categories?
1: Well, we normally start with the question of your favorite first-time viewing so uh who wants to start
0: i'll kick that off and i'll just say you know obviously first time viewing i think means you know first time first time viewing in terms of like you watch this movie for the first time because of the national film registry right uh because obviously like we all see these things at different times there's movies that i know that like both tom and i watched right at the end of season two out of curiosity because they were coming up season three that's we're going to count that as a first time viewing kind of thing right yeah uh in that case in terms of my awareness of it because of the registry uh my favorite first time viewing was an easy one for me um and i think it's a movie that i i I, it's fair to say surprised all of us when we saw it which is david holzman's diary Mm. one of those ones Uh that like you hear about you see it on the registry list you go what the hell is this how does it get in so quick how does it get in over a b c d and then you actually sit and watch it and i think it's It's a movie I've watched several times. It's a movie that I think just really clicked for all of us in terms of how kind of interesting and formative it is. And it's one that I can see myself revisiting several times down the line. It's it's a genuine joy to watch. And I don't know if I would have found it were it not for the registry. Um, And I'm so
1: grateful that I did. I will say that is a movie that I enjoyed more the second go around because you initially told me not to see anything going into it. And then once I sort of realized what it was all about, I was like, Oh, Mm -hmm. I think I would have had a much different and sure enough, like, but yeah, at the very least it gets you to kind of revisit it and look at it from that different lens. So Bravo, Mr. Holzman. All right. So for me, my
2: answer, I got to give it a tie just because I want it. There's like two sides of the same sort of, National Firm Registry coin. Um, sort of more of a artsier choice and more of a pure entertainment choice. So my two picks are High School and Gigi. Yeah, wow. I see the look on Mike's face. Wow. Gigi is a movie that's grown on me a lot because mm-hmm. um, I liked it when I saw it, but then talking about it, I started liking it even more. And even now when I was making these this list of all the awards and everything, just thinking about it and how I was just... Instinctively going, fuck! I want a four K disc of this movie. Mm-hmm. I like, I like, I really want to feel it. I want to watch it and feel it the way it's meant to be seen, and not on like a fucking old school DVD. I want yeah. the colors to pop. I want the surround sound to just envelop me. So that movie is a movie that really's grown on me uh, over the last, I don't know what eight, we watched it like eight months ago, six months ago, something like that. Uh, and high school is just one of those things I talk about a lot on this show, which is I love being transported back in time and seeing a world or an area or what have you, a specific like little subculture or whatnot captured without it being a period piece. I like seeing, I like movies and cinema, cinema being uh, a time capsule. And I think high school is the best uh, version of that because Holzman's great. And it has a lot of that, but it is fictional Whereas high school is just throwing you right into the deep end of a real high school in, in what it was, uh, it's Philly, correct? Yeah. 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 Cause I keep thinking so much Mike judge stuff's in there. I'm like, yeah. it's not Texas, is it? Uh-huh. Uh, no, but you just get just caught up in that. And it's, you know. It's great. So I wanted to just give those two a shout out, just two sides of the same coin, because, uh, you know, they're both movies that I really think everybody uh, should see. And uh, Gigi, who would have thought, right? My
0: my heart goes out to everyone on DraftKings right now who put what they thought was a safe bet on Tom saying out of the past. I think uh, lots of guys throwing their phones into a river right now. Uh, no, you know what? Because I didn't I
2: I don't, think I, w- I don't think I watched it for the for the show for the first time.
0: Oh, uh, you did, because on the finale
2: last season, you say you'd never seen oh. it, and I said... Okay, so then, you know what? Well, you don't listen. <laughs> stick with right, your well, answers. You know I love your answers. I'm gonna, no, I'm going to just... stick with my answers, but also, I'll do. i I'll have a legit reason for sticking with my answers. Out of the Past is going to get a lot of love tonight. Yeah. Just spoiler alert. Uh, Out of the Past just, is going to get a lot of love tonight.
0: It's just, you might not remember this, on the season two finale, I'm talking about movies, and you go, uh movie I'm most excited to see that I haven't seen, Out of the Past, and I went, Tom, you're going to be a pig in shit. Like, I
2: didn't realize you oh, hadn't am a, seen oh, the film before. Oh, and I am a pig in shit about it. But yeah. you know what? It's going to get a lot of love tonight. <laughs> and, you know, I'm doing a lot of different stuff with this yeah, show. Yeah, of course. You know, no, it's broadening I, I, my horizon. So I wanted to give some answers. Because there's I, going to be, listen, there's going to be answers here going forward that are just like, oh, obviously, that's a time. No, pick,
0: I, but... I, to be honest, I love these answers. And, and you know, I'm, bef- I'm sorry not to cut you off, Cobb, but like, but. I'm in the same boat as you with Gigi. Like I've grown to love that movie. And I did not like it when I first saw it as a kid. So.
2: Oh yeah. And it's, 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 I re- I really do. Like, I think, I think I said, cause again, who knows what I say in episodes, not me. I don't yeah. listen to him, but I think, I think I said in the episode, I think this is a movie that would benefit greatly from getting uh, a 4k, yeah. even if it doesn't get a 4k disc, if like max does a 4k upgrade for it to stream, I think that would get people uh, a lot more on board because this is, this is the kind of movie that maybe doesn't need to be seen on the big screen. I would like to see it on the big screen, but it's it needs to be seen with the clarity yeah. involved in the production design and the color scheme and the cinematography and all of that. So I think that's something that would definitely uh, make this movie a lot more Im- Im- impressive and more wide ranging for people.
0: Kyle, what about you? Favorite first time viewing?
1: You would think it would be either 2001 or Lawrence of Arabia. And while I appreciate going over to Tom's and watching it on that, or watching Lawrence on his giant television, the 4k was absolutely great. Uh, my first time or my favorite first time viewing is actually city lights, you know, for obvious reasons. The fact that it's so revered, it's timeless. It's again, I think I'd mentioned in an earlier episode too, just trying to find, you know, we want to encourage everybody to watch all of these, but, but trying to find like instant, hay dip your toe in if you like these this type of thing. This is why this matters. City Lights gripped me from the first minute, right? But more importantly, the actual development of the film being a movie that, you know, a silent film has, uh, you know, the talkies are starting to kind of rise and everything. It's an act of rebellion, but it also is Chaplin's best work. So yeah, I enjoyed City Lights. It's going to get a little bit more love tonight, but I enjoyed it a lot. So what's our next question, Kyle? Most enjoyable rewatch.
0: Well, it's funny that this comes in this order, because for me, my most enjoyable rewatch was City Lights. I've always been a big fan of City Lights. Kyle, like you, I believe it's Chaplin's masterpiece. And I've loved City Lights since I was a kid, but there was something about, you know, I hadn't watched it in a long time, uh, and I watched it. I I mentioned on the episode, I watched it with my family around and all of that, and we all just kind of fell under the spell of, like, you forget how engaging a movie like that can be right you forget in some senses, this is a point tom likes to bring up a lot um which is the idea of silent. when we, you're talking about silent movies there's always this kind of like possibility with any revered silent film like am i going to be watching this and going as a historical artifact this is very interesting but also it's not capturing my attention like as a modern yeah. viewer or the ones that really do and City Lights is absolutely in that latter camp. Like that movie still works, that still plays, and you really don't need to sit somebody down and go. So here's what you have to understand about movies at that time. Like it just plays, and obviously it's deeply moving. I love that ending. I love so much of that. Um, so yeah, my most enjoyable rewatch was City Lights. I fell in love with it all over again.
2: So again, I'm just I I I have to tie it up because. There's just two movies in here that are too perfect and too special to me, honestly, that I have to just give them shout outs. Um, Lawrence of Arabia is one of my favorite rewatches because I think it led to, in my opinion, you know, I think all our episodes, all our conversations were great, but I think the conversation we had with Vice about it was really something special and opened it up in ways that, you know, I may have subconsciously thought about, but really just opened the movie up even more for a movie I thought is I still think is perfect. Um, and also just because it's me, Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Like I love watching that movie. It's one of my favorites. And just like the other day, I was just thinking like, fuck, I should, get, I got to get a Frankenstein tattoo. Like uh, of, of the old universal horrors, you know, the Frankenstein, the Karloff Frankenstein trilogy is so special, not just to me, but I feel like to cinema history in ways that I don't think people even think about anymore, but I like just Frankenstein was just so it's always eye opening, And again, leading to a conversation on this show where it's more about getting into why it's great instead of picking it apart and being better than it or whatever. Like you could be with any movie from that era. I just loved, I just loved watching it and engaging with it and just solidifying why it's one of my favorite movies of all time.
1: By default, uh, it's not a bad default to have, but I think it's the only one that on the list that I had actually seen. It's uh, King Kong, but it's you know such a great staple. Tom nominated the 2005 Peter Jackson remake for his registry pick and whatnot, and that, to me, is the farthest back that I can remember sort of connecting with film with my parents in a way that goes back that long, right? Where it wasn't just, oh, here's this movie that's coming out now, enjoy it in the moment. It's like, no, we're going to watch this new King Kong movie and if we like this, then you can go back and sort of see how it's been told through the ages, so it's kind of cool to kind of, you know, have that be sort of the starting point where uh, kind of my curiosity for film or how it connects with everybody starts. So, yeah. Good stuff. Are Our- next or our third final little preliminary question here is if you could go back in time and watch one movie in theaters when it debuted what would it be
0: well i'll say this kyle i'm perplexed at how this pattern kind of worked out because in our first rounds of questioning it ended with you saying city lights and the next round started with me saying city lights and then the last round ended with you saying King Kong. And this round is going to start with me answering, it's King Kong. If I could go back and see any movie in theaters, it's King Kong. I love that movie. I talk about it on the episode Ad nauseum. I, I love the film King Kong. I love the franchise of King Kong. I love everything about it. I've always loved that movie. And, um, you know, I'm sure I could see it in a rep screening if anybody decided to screen it. Um, but now, if I saw it in a rep screening, I'd be surrounded by an audience of people who know the iconography and are kind of maybe going, oh, you know, that movie was actually better than I thought. Or, oh, I didn't know an old movie could feel that way. And what I would love to feel is the urgency of people seeing King Kong in its day when those effects aren't just impressive for its day, they are impressive, right? Where... You just, the energy in that room, you know, my favorite type of movie to see, it's not a genre or anything like that, but it's just when the whole audience is seeing something new and all of them, we all collectively have that energy of, I just saw something special. And I feel like, you know, (laughs) any time in 1933, uh, if I had gone to see King Kong in the theater, I would have felt that. So uh, my answer is King Kong
2: uh and again because i'm a glutton i've got a tie just because they're so fitting for me um i would also pick king kong as mike said would love to be in a crowd seeing that for the first time not knowing what they're about to see and being blown away by it uh and again it's it's kind of the same thing i would love to be in the theater for frankenstein because dracula came out earlier that year but frankenstein feels like such a an big evolutionary step not just for universals horror movies but just movies in general it's a it, it doesn't feel like a silent movie with some sound attached to it like dracula this feels like a sound horror picture and seeing the first time off walks on screen in that makeup and just those visuals i mean my god that that had to be fucking something else so king kong and frankenstein are definitely the ones that i would absolutely love to see in a theater when they first came out.
1: Kyle? I'm going to make a slight departure here, but kind of also right on the money. Um, I went with Lawrence of Arabia uh, for all similar reasons, as y'all have said too, you know, between participating in uh, Barbenheimer over the summer and kind of the little uh, intermission dinner course thing that Tom and I did with Lawrence of Arabia and everything, when we did our watch, I, I sit and wonder How you would have made a night out knowing that you were in for a four-hour epic, right? In the same way that we probably treat the stage theater or Broadway or anything like that. So, be really curious to sort of see it at that time. Plus, you're like smoking cigarettes and talking about like I don't
0: know the communists or something because it was like '62, so
1: you know. Oh, that's right. And I guess you're dressed. Yeah, and John F. Dressed- Kennedy's still alive, so... Yeah, you're dressed yeah. like
0: madmen, you know? Yeah. You're talking about how the Ta- carousel, it takes us back in time to a place where we are loved.
2: Yeah. Talking about that uh, that old situation over in Asia.
0: Yeah. Um, by the way, I will just say this, uh, whether or not I was a past guest of the show for Poor Little Rich Girl, uh, Bella Zadenberg, uh, yeah. you know, was kind enough to give me a rap gift on uh, season <laughs> three. Uh huh. The original very Lawrence nice. of Arabia soundtrack on vinyl. How do we like Hell that? Hell yeah! Right, very nice. So Rock we'll, have on. To, we'll have to host a listening party at some point. Um, <laughs> and I guess that brings us to our the uh, main
2: categories.
0: Correct, our awards categories. So, uh, Kyle, what are we starting off with?
1: Best actor.
0: All right. So, obviously, we're doing lead and runner-up. And I think that the reason I like that, especially this time around, uh, is because I th- I cannot imagine Tom and I don't have the same pick for our lead winner. Um, but we're probably going to have very different runner-ups and things like that. But the answer for lead actor is obvious. It's, it's Peter O'Toole in Lawrence of Arabia. It's one of the greatest performances in the history of film. It's an extraordinary lead performance. It is maybe the most lead performance, right? That movie... Has an incredible cast and incredible visuals. It also lives and dies on him. Um, I've talked about the No Prisoner scene a lot. I talk a lot about that performance on the episode. But uh, So my winner is Peter O'Toole for Lawrence of Arabia. My runner-up, however, is Maurice Schwartz for Tevia. In mm-hmm. the same sense, that is a movie that lives and dies on that performance. Now, it's not nearly as showy a performance as Peter O'Toole. It's not nearly as glamorous if anything, it is kind of the anti-Lawrence in a lot of ways, in terms of how inward it is and how uh, reserved it is. Uh, you know, and obviously Lawrence is a guy who is dreaming of the future and unable to accept the world as it is. And Tevye is a man who is stuck in the past and not willing to accept the world as it is. So I think they're an interesting contrast. And I also just think... Maury Schwartz is an incredible performer in that film, and I, I'm so fond of him now after that movie. So that's my winner and runner-up. Tom?
2: All right. Uh, prepare to be shocked. My best actor is Jack in Chinatown. Okay. Okay. Um, because wow, I think because, w- one, it's just, it's unbelievably magnetic. It is a tough character to navigate, He's got a slippy morality, even though at the end he's a decent guy. He's not; he he's trying to hide it, and I think it's hard to find that balance of being a good guy and having the shell of being a cynic and everything. Um, Two, we've seen Jack try to do this role again, and he (laughs) fails completely in the two Jakes, Um, and it's it's astounding, which again shows like. It was kind of a lightning in a bottle performance. And three, this is kind of, I think in my opinion, the Jack Nicholson performance. Mm -hmm. And he is one of the most iconic actors of all time. And this is, you know, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is great. King of Marvin Gardens, all that stuff he did uh, in the indie scene before his big blow up. But this is just like, this is, he could have lived off of this the rest of his career because it's just so fucking, it is, it is Jack. And that's not to say he's not acting because he's done other great performances that are not this, but this is just so everything you want from Jack Nicholson, it comes from this. Um, and my runner up is Peter O'Toole and Lawrence of Arabia. For everything Mike said, I agree completely. That's not to denigrate his performance at all. Mm-hmm. But I just think I have to edge out Nicholson. Uh, it's it's a stunning piece of work. So yeah, that's my runner and runner up.
1: Yeah, so I'll I'll I'll, I'll bring it back. Uh, obviously, Peter O'Toole, right? I mean, it's captivating. You feel for him or emotionally connect with him in different ways. You know, it's just crazy that at one moment it feels like you, I don't know, it feels like an adventure movie and you sort of want him to kind of see it through to the end. And then by the second half of the film, you're just sitting there almost like in like disbelief, discomfort. I even told Tom at the end, like just the abruptness of the ending and yet knowing exactly how the movie and the story ends. Right. Just kind of being like, that's it. Like I just spent four hours with this dude and just sort of just, is done and everything and what a fitting way it's a great great performance um yeah hard to hard to beat and you did not do runner-ups just for the clarification i I did not no no. no i mean no i did pretty pretty straightforward for me i just want
0: to make sure nobody thinks we're like leaving out part of your answers or anything
1: okay no no runner-ups here listen this is the this is the actual oscars no oopsies (laughs) no bs moonlight you won best picture so peter o'toole snowby <laughs> asked you one best actor so uh next up, up next ne- next up we've got best actress
0: fellas i just want to say this is the most fascinated i've been for a category uh to see where we go with this really uh i'm because it's just it's a fascinating
2: year um this was a, this was maybe the second toughest one yeah. for me this year
0: hmm. um so for me i think i had to i mean the answer is pretty was pretty easy for me once I thought about it, uh, because I think it was just in the prep for this episode, uh, I just was so. It, it's it's the kind of performance, uh, kind of like O'Toole and Lawrence, where you just kind of look at it and go like, oh, they're this is just a star, right? Um, so I won't do too much. Mary Pickford in the Poor Little Rich Girl is mm-hmm. is my best actress. It is a thing that you just look at. Like, I mean, I know like when we did our episode, Tom, uh, you know, his favorite parts were Mickey Doolin and, and the Descended <laughs> to Hell. But Hell I, think yeah. for, I think for any of us, like, there is just that thing of, we said it, you know, you look at her and you're like, oh, this is the first person who seems to really understand acting for the screen, right? Like, prior to a Mary Pickford, and especially prior to a poor little rich girl, which so solidifies, like, her kind of typecasting in a way. Um you look at her and you realize like, this is the the start of the domino rally, right? Every actress, every great screen actress after this, if you start tracing back who influenced them and who influenced them and who influenced them, it all comes back to this. And I think that even now um, to contemporary actors and actresses, uh, if you show them what Mary Pickford is doing in the poor little rich girl and the way that she takes material that would have really loaned itself to very big stagey acting and brings heart to it. I think you can still learn something from that as an actor today. So, uh, my winner is, is Mary Pickford for the poor little rich girl. My runner up changed pretty recently. I had a different idea in mind and then we did an episode recently I'm giving my runner-up to an actress who never starred in another film, but really carries the film she's in, which is Catherine Cavanagh from The Blood of Jesus. Um, you know, I think we all were kind of taken aback by by how she kind of carries that film, and uh, especially considering how she didn't really act other than that. Um, so my runner-up is Catherine Cavanagh for The Blood of Jesus. My winner is Mary Pickford, The Poor Little Rich Girl.
2: Yeah, like I said, this one was a tough one. Second toughest category of the night for me. Uh, Caveness was on my short list. Uh, she didn't make it for me. Um, my winner, and again, Mike is going to be very surprised by this, but I feel like should it the surprise should be dulled by now. My winner is Leslie Caron for Gigi. Uh, absolutely winning performance. She is just adorable. She's great. She balances this very tough act that this role requires it's a tougher movie than you would think it would be and i think she nails it it's absolutely fantastic um one of the many reasons like i said i wish this had a 4k disc just so i could like enjoy her performance on my gigantic tv within 4k quality i think it would just be absolutely stunning and uh my runner-up is teresa wright in shadow of a doubt mm. Uh, Again, a very tough role. Very tough. Maybe, honestly, maybe the toughest uh, female performance in any Hitchcock movie. And she knocks it out of the park. I think she's great. She stands toe-to-toe with Joseph Cotton in a very uh, impressive, immaculate way. Um, I think more than Cotton, if she, she didn't work in the role, the movie wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. And I think you got to give her all the fucking roses in the world. And yeah, so Leslie Caron wins, but Teresa Wright is a very close runner up for me.
1: Glad we're kind of spreading the love out here because, uh, I, I gave it to Virginia Cheryl as the blind girl in city lights. There's something about her performance, the gentleness of it. Chaplin going through hell to go out for somebody who he doesn't really know. just cares for whatever you got to, you got to sell it without being able to say a lot. And I think by the end, when it takes her a moment to realize that he is the one who has been fighting for her this entire time and kind of that devastation that you feel, that embarrassment that he feels like it doesn't work. I think without her, I'm kind of I'm just really glad that we kind of gave it all to different people and just had a very different perspective coming from it. So
0: hell yeah! shout out. Absolutely. And plus, Kyle, be honest, you just want to give her an award for putting up with Chaplin while
1: shooting that movie. I mean, that too. You know, you got to give credit where credit is due. (laughs) But I don't know. There's something about it. I still kind of vaguely remember watching it for the first time and being in absolute agony, being like, wait, you don't know (laughs) now, please, Virginia. But anyway, so our next up, uh, our next category is best supporting actor. I'll be curious to see if we... uh, The toughest
2: category of the night.
1: Really?
0: It's the toughest. I'm going to pull back the curtain a bit. I was the one who suggested that we do supporting performances this year. Right? And we all said yes. And when I suggested it, it was early on in the season. I was like, we should add a supporting category. And the reason I suggested it was because I had a particular performance in mind that ultimately, by the end of the season, didn't make my winner or my runner-up. I was like, okay, we should do a supporting actor because I really want to talk about Chevalier and Gigi. Not, did not make the cut for me because there are two I, – Tom, I agree with you. It's a tough year, but also there are two performances that were duking it out for who wins and who gets runner-up that are both undeniable. Um, and when we're talking about how I picked the winner, I, the only thing I can say is it was like they were dueling. It was like they were sword fighting, let's say, (laughs) Yeah, Uh, because I think undeniably and there's there's I could totally see somebody going with the guy I picked for my runner up. But there is just a thing of Douglas Fairbanks Jr. in The Prisoner of Zenda is one of those things where like. We all like Prisoner of Zenda, it's an impressive film and it works, you know, in large part because he's got that incredible performance, but his performance is so good and so engaging in that. That even if somebody hated that movie, they could not deny that he is incredibly compelling in it, right? Like, he just, he he makes the movie, and he also works outside of the movie. It is an incredible performance, and it, we said it on the episode, so many people have been modeling their performances on that after that. I mean, Douglas Fairbanks Jr.'s Rupert Pensau is just one of the great screen-supporting performances, um, and it is criminal it wasn't recognized. My runner-up could just as easily be described that way, which is Kirk Douglas in Out of the Past, which, again, we remark upon in the episode, is just one of the... You watch it and just go, I cannot believe that he did this this early in his career. And it, in a way, like, Kirk in Out of the Past is kind of on par with Rupert of Hensau, where, like... You're like, I know what this story is for the most part, but then this X factor comes in. And you're like, I can't get a read on this guy. I don't know if he plans to murder our lead. I don't know if he plans to fuck our lead. I don't know what <laughs> this guy's deal is, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's, they are very similar in that way. So, you know, very close runner up for Kirk Douglas. I It was like almost a coin toss, but I, I do give... A slight edge to Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Uh, in *Prisoner of
2: Zenda*. Uh, like I said, this was very <laughs> tough. Chevalier was on my short list. You know, mm-hmm. th- this my short list is probably like fucking ten people long. It's crazy. It's it's ridiculous. Um, but my winner again, it's a toss up. But I, in sh- terms of sheer iconography and what it's done for the history of cinema. I got to give it to Karloff for Frankenstein. That movie, the look is great. The script is great. Whale's direction's great. All of that's great. But if you don't have Karloff in that makeup, fully embodying that character when he walks out of the shadows for the first time, the movie doesn't work. Interesting. And almost 100 years later, I think 90 years later at this point, it's everyone still knows it. Even if you haven't seen the movie, you know Karloff is Frankenstein. Everyone who played Frankenstein in the Universal Cycle when he left was just doing Karloff. Uh, I mean, shit, even when they were doing Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, he wasn't Frankenstein in it, but he showed up during the promotional tour because it's like, hey, Karloff is Frankenstein. Like, we couldn't get him for this movie. He was kind of over it, but come on, it's Karloff is Frankenstein. Uh, so uh, it's it's just that sheer like it's a shame it's almost a shame that frankenstein's in this year of the registry because of how powerfully iconic this movie is and this performance is because my runner-up is kirk douglas (laughs) Uh, again like we said so early in his career so fully formed so fucking charismatic so sleazy so villainous but so likable he's so fucking likable i just it's to be that early in your career and to dance mitchum off the screen is a fucking feat so i feel bad that frankenstein had to be in the same fucking list because karloff is just too powerful in my opinion to ignore but yeah kirk is a just a sliver below as the runner-up this was fucking tough yeah
1: yep you uh took the words right out of my mouth tom because the only note i have is frankenstein is a classic story but the iconography of frankenstein is made timeless by boris karloff so enough said
0: so karloff is your winner as well oh yeah absolutely you know what's so funny both of you saying that i hadn't even considered him as a supporting performance in that movie And you're right, he is, you know, but I just, my brain didn't even think of that.
2: Because it's such a tough (laughs) year that you just don't even want to think about it because then you go, well, fuck, what's the, what's the, what's a performance that has lasted and impacted so many different things over the last 90 years? And you go, kind of in, inarguably Boris Karloff is Frankenstein. But it is that thing
0: of like, once I, once I remember, like it was, Truly, like, once we revisited Zenda for the
2: episode, yeah. I was oh, just no, like, Fair, oh Fairbanks uh, Fairbanks is unbelievable in the performance. And yeah, he has influenced so many of those kind of morally dubious supporting characters where maybe he's good, maybe he's bad. It just depends on the day you catch him and how just, again, he dances everybody off the screen and in that, that movie. Fucking,
0: that leap out the window is still one of oh, the best it's... things in any
2: movie. <laughs> It's it's the best. I yeah. mean, like I said, it really is, in my opinion, just, was an just a shame. Of this year. It's an embarrassment of riches, but it's such a shame that Karloff had to be in the same category as everybody else. I mean,
0: you know, you know it was a crazy year. None of us even mentioned John Huston in Chinatown. On my shortlist. That's short how list. good a year it was. Also
2: on the shortlist, yep. Omar Sharif. Yep. Yes, you know. Sharif and Anthony Quinn alec innis i yes. mean like it, it, r- ridiculous year what a fucking year r- that's why i was just like fuck like what I, a like, fucking year yeah i i just yeah uh, it's they, they all congrats yeah. guys like <laughs> unbelievable performances but fucking carloff to me but yeah. also fairbanks yeah, yeah like like and kirk kirk yeah. my boy my guy <laughs> oh, oh. What's, what's next kyle
1: Best
0: supporting
1: actress?
0: So I'm pulling one out here that I'm I'm willing to, I'm fascinated uh, where everybody went on this one because in the same way that we're talking about, like, oh, there were a lot of like very prominent supporting actor performances this year, right? Um, There are some very good supporting actress performances this year, but there aren't as many that are that showy, right? There is no Rupert of Hensow on that side. So I was trying to think in this regard, and I think the one that, is my real winner for supporting actress because, um, the again, the movie doesn't work without her, and also she just feels so natural and so honest. It's Eileen Dietz for David Holzman's Diary. Mm. Um, I just an incredible performance that is so intimate and so sincere, right? I mean, this was a movie made by an amateur director on no budget. If you had gotten an actress who gave a really big performance you wouldn't be surprised, right? But instead, she knows, Eileen knows how to dial it in so much that you, I mean, again, if you don't know that the movie is scripted, you believe it. You fully believe those moments when she's curled up on the chair and just, David, stop, David, stop. All of that. You fully believe it. She's incredible in this film and she's, in a way, she's so good that you just get mad that, she didn't have a bigger career afterward. I mean, obviously she has the exorcist and she's still working today, but I think she just does not get her flowers for this role enough. And she's just so good in it. Uh, And my runner up is Linda Darnell in my darling Clementine, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a very, uh, you know, present performance. It's certainly not what Eileen Dietz is doing in my darling Clementine. um, But she is, she is what that movie needs, right? She is an anchor for that film in a really powerful way. So, uh, Linda Darnell from *My Darling Clementine* is my runner-up. Eileen Dietz for *David Holzman's Diary* is my winner.
2: Okay, so this category is almost the opposite of supporting actor for me because this was once I looked at the list immensely easy. I looked at the list and my my one and two immediately came to mind, and I didn't even need to think anything else. My my winner for best supporting actress is Faye Dunaway in *Chinatown*. Um, you put her
0: supporting, interesting. Okay.
2: I did mainly because I do think it's so much Jack's performance that anybody else is supporting. Just if you think about screen time and how this isn't a negative in this sense, but like her story is kind of serving his arc. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's just such an amazing performance. We talk about difficulty of the role. She's the femme fatale, but she's the victim. She's steely, but she's weak. She's tough, but she's scared. I mean, just the, she's my daughter, she's my sister, she's my daughter, she's my si-, That scene, just that alone gets you the fucking award. And then you get to the end when she's fucking confronting John Huston and she's, fucking shoots him and she it's just whoa what a fucking performance i mean jesus christ like that's the second i saw it i was like yeah no faye dunaway she's the winner and number two very close but she just can't hold a candle to faye dunaway i'm sorry it's shelly winters in a place in the sun Mm -hmm. that -hmm. is just I don't even know how to put it into words. It's just a great performance where she's got to be kind of pathetic. Yeah. But if she's too pathetic, you don't care that she dies in the movie. Like you have to find this easy balance of you get where she's coming from, but Jesus Christ, woman enough already. You're on a boat with a guy who's looking at you. Like I'm going to fucking kill you. If you make me have this child and just like her realization of, when she's on the boat of like, yeah, I get it. You don't love me anymore, but heartbreaking shit. That, I mean, that just, line, I wish you
0: still loved me is
2: brutal. It's brutal. It's, it's fucking brutal. And just again, the balancing act and how tough the, the role is and how she just, she just fucking nailed it. Um, she keeps up with Montgomery Clift, who was on my short list for actor. Um, one of the best to ever do it. And she kept up with him and, yeah, I mean, I know Elizabeth Taylor became the icon and everything, but Shelly Winters is just... Yeah, Faye Dunaway and Shelley Winters are my one and two. What a, what a fucking pair of performances from those two. Oh,
1: yeah. Kyle? Mike and I were on the same wavelength, because <laughs> I also gave it to Eileen Dietz's Pennywall, and legitimately for the exact same reason, right? Because had I been upset and been like, oh, girl, this movie actually isn't... What it seems upon the second rewatch, it's realizing, oh, I felt as compelled because of her conformance, because of her being repulsed or just so uncomfortable. She could just as easily just not buy into it or not match that level of uh, intensity or whatever. But she does. And yeah, absolutely loved it. So I'm glad we're on the same page on that one. What's next? Next category, Best Director.
0: Tough one uh tough one. Be split, I think. there's a lot of movies that i i love and um and a lot of movies that are just so brilliantly directed uh a testament to how tough this category was uh somehow i do not have stanley kubrick for 2001 A space odyssey as either my winner or runner-up wow that is how good a year this is um hell and yeah I'll, I'll tell you why uh, and i'll actually do it in reverse order my runner-up is David Lean for Lawrence of Arabia, which is one of the best-directed films and an incredible <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> Um Because, again, I you know, and Tom and I always have, like, kind of the same criteria for best director, which is sitting down and going, how different is this movie if all of the same parts are there and somebody else is in the chair, right? Um, and that's true of Kubrick, obviously. And that's true of Lean and Lawrence, right? But there is something that I think... You know, in talking about it, just the amount of control, the amount of uh, subtlety and brilliance in in what they were doing as a director, that I had to give it to Charlie Chaplin for City Lights. Mm. I look at that and it's just one of those things where I've used this term a lot on the show, but like City Lights is a mini miracle, right? It is a thing that should not work and... In talking about the other films that I love this season, you know, the two epics that I could have given it to, Lean for Lawrence and Kubrick for two thousand one, those are massive epics. And of course, of course, in the wrong hands, they could be massive failures, right? They could be a heaven's gate. They could be one of those. And I, I admire everything Lean does in Lawrence. It's my arguably my favorite movie of all time. But it is just a thing to look at City Lights and think how easily this movie could have been completely forgotten because it's so small and it's so simple and it's not even like anybody could necessarily point to a gag in city lights and go, well, that's the funniest thing I've ever seen. We love it, but like, you know, it's that, but it's the little things and the little dignities that he gives these characters and these performances that I think is so remarkable. Um, So I, I had to give it to Chaplin for city lights, but my runner up is David Lean for Lawrence of Arabia.
2: Yeah, this was another tough one. Gotta be honest, not as tough as Supporting Actor. That one's going to haunt me to the, to my <laughs> uh, dying 9 p.m. on September 14th, because once the recording's over, I'm done thinking about this ever again. I, uh, oh, my God.
0: Kyle, Tom, you said until my dying September 14th at 9 p.m., and until you said, because I'm going to forget about the recording, it absolutely sounded like you were telling the listeners as soon as we hit
2: stop, it's night,
0: night forever.
2: You think I was going to pull a Bud Dwyer? <laughs> it's a, it's, a, it's an audio medium. I can't pull it. If I'm going to do the bit, it's got to be on camera. <laughs> okay, so ironically enough, my runner up is David Lean for Lawrence of Arabia. Ooh masterful movie his best movie in a in a career of just absolute fucking home runs he what one of the best directors of all time uh nobody else could have made that movie because we saw a lot of people try to make that movie and he kept trying to make that movie after this to varying degrees of success shivago's great Eh, some of the other stuff whatever In terms of impact, in terms of this person was the only person that could have made this movie in this specific way and how it changed cinema. Full stop, lightning in a bottle. Everything changed after this movie. I got to give it to James Whale for Frankenstein. Um, Horror movies are not what they are if he doesn't do this movie. And if he doesn't do this movie, he doesn't do of Frankenstein, which, again horror movies cinema is not the same. He makes the first horror comedy and it's a masterpiece. It's still the best horror comedy. It's either that or Abbott and Costello me Frankenstein, but I'm, I'm giving it to Brad Frankenstein. What he does with Frankenstein, the, 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 tonal balancing act, the visual, just mastery. He, he brings on display the work he gets out of Colin Clive and Boris Karloff, the scares, the shocking brutality, the sadness uh, it's, we, we, you know, masterpiece icon, you know, people could throw that around a lot and not mean it or dilute the word. But in this case, it's absolutely true with Frankenstein. It's, it's, there's nothing like it. Cinema is not the same after Frankenstein.
1: Yeah, I thought, uh, for sure, I'll just be honest a little peek into my brain i thought for sure y'all were going to be talking about 2001 at lawrence of arabia so i thought oh i'm gonna pick the safe bat i'm gonna go with charlie chaplin and city lights for the exact reason that i kind of mentioned earlier this idea that it is his best work you know it is made as the the, the film medium is transforming and evolving and uh, changing and everything like how how can you not but truly more than anything I just thought we were going to be talking about Lawrence of Arabia in 2001 forever. So I figured those were, I just wanted to be different. So, but again, I'm still willing to give Chaplin his flowers. So, which uh, leads us into our next, uh, next category, best cinematography.
2: Uh, really yeah. tough one. Honestly, yeah. this, it, Jesus Christ. Um, so my,
0: I mean, my winner was easy and the runner up was tough. Best cinematography is Lawrence of Arabia to me by a country mile. It's just it's not just the best cinematography out of the 25 films we covered this season. It's the best cinematography ever of any movie ever made in the history of cinema. So, it's going to it's going to win best cinematography for me. Hell, it might just keep winning. I might just throw it in as a winner next season even though we don't cover it on the show. Because it's the best cinematography. My runner-up was tough, however. But, weirdly, I don't need to make an argument for it. Tom has been making an argument for it all night, which is Gigi. Gigi is absolutely... I mean, when you consider the fact that they were able to make a musical that mostly takes place indoors and feels as big as, you know, Maria on top of the mountain in The Sound of Music... Is incredible. That movie is gorgeous. The colors pop. It is just a a visual delight. I cannot think of another movie musical that I would say you could watch this in full, you watch this on mute. That I would say you could watch this on mute and it would still be an enjoyable
2: watch. I my runner up is Gigi, my winner is Lawrence Varabia. Okay, so before I get into my picks, a uh, quick rebuttal. Best Cinematography of All Time is never going to be uh, p- actually talked about on this show because it's an Italian movie. That is Suspiria. Get with the program. Um, but yeah, my number one is uh, Freddie A. Young's work on Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, 70mm was made for Freddie A. Young's work on this movie. Just just, just stunning. I mean, come on. like, What are we even doing here? Um, but again so many fucking good looking movies this year, man. How do you even pick? But I'm kind of going with the movie that I've, that's kind of been running the table for me in a lot of ways in this run. I'm going with Arthur Edison's work on Frankenstein. When you just think about iconography, changing cinema, the lasting impact Frankenstein, man, you know, listen, Chinatown's great. Out of the past is great. Magnificent Ambersons is great. Gigi's great. 2001's great. <laughs> But Frankenstein left the impact Frankenstein. Just it's got to get it's either got to win or be like mess, like mentioned in almost every category. And watching it this year when the 4K came out in between seasons and being able to watch this 4K disc, which looks like you have a fucking 35 millimeter print. With the scratches and the grain, but it looks like it was the first night shown in fucking New York in 1933. I mean, gorgeous movie. Just one of the best looking movies ever made. Again, shame Lawrence of Arabia had to come. <laughs> it's funny in this time, Frankenstein's the one where you go. It's a shame something else came out yeah. because Lawrence of Arabia is kind of running the table when it comes to looking like the best thing ever made. But then Frankenstein's just like, but give it to me. (laughs) But yeah, Lawrence of Arabia and Frankenstein. Can't go wrong with those movies looks.
1: Yeah, no surprise here. My pick was Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, It's our
2: first one. It's all three, right? There we go. Would not kick Lawrence of Arabia out of bed for eating crackers. Yeah, uh,
1: when we watch this uh, throughout uh, the four-hour epic, and Tom can attest this, and this might actually be something I want to play with as we're doing more video content and stuff, but just the amount of gorgeous shots, is just I kept going throughout the movie. Good shot, good shit, and I felt like yeah. every two minutes was just doing a little tally. I just ah, oh, good shot, good shit. You know, where like I, if I thought this shot was going to be good, two minutes later, something even better was going to take my breath away, and it just kept going for four hours. It's like my favorite part of the Revenant, but like four hour epic. Ugh, oh, love it. I, I don't shot, know how he shit. didn't
2: run out of breath because he kept he literally kept saying it every two minutes good shot good shit (laughs) i mean like yeah like there's no question
1: what are we doing here anyway next category best screenplay
0: it's so funny i kind of knew how i was going to say this and then i listened to our finale from last season where i said the exact same thing which is there's only one answer there (laughs) is a correct answer because when they use the expression, this should be taught in schools, this script is taught in schools. <laughs> I said the exact same thing last season about All About Eve, and I have to say, it, it is Chinatown. And not, I'm not trying to take this stance, but I gotta say it. It's not just, my pick is Chinatown. It is China. The answer is Chinatown. <laughs> it's the best screenplay. It's the screenplay. What are we doing? It is Chinatown, right? The only question is, what is my runner-up?
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, And in that, I actually, it's so funny. I had a number of things slotted in there that I kind of wasn't happy with. And then I remembered how good the script of this movie is and went, oh, of course, which is Trouble in Paradise. Mm. That is, you know, there are other movies I could slot in there where like, oh, it's a good script that a good movie is built out of but trouble in paradise has just such incredible dialogue such clever peppy writing i think that is a movie that you forget how good it is for a while after you've seen it right like i feel like revisit it again you're like oh man i forgot just how engaging this is that you know i mean that lubich touch is there but it's just that rapid fire dialogue it's a incredible film great script so my winner is Chinatown I don't need to say any more about it because we spent a good chunk of the episode talking about that script it's the greatest script but then my runner-up is Trouble in Paradise Tom
2: yeah uh it's Robert Town for Chinatown like I mean you know nothing else to be said it's really just what's your runner-up and again pretty tough to be honest there was my list was pretty decent uh but Thinking about the episode we recorded on this movie and the conversation it led to and how much depth that I already knew was there. But finding even more hidden depths and the depths that have uh, come upon us as time has made it age like a fine wine. Um, I got to give it to Robert Bolt and Michael Wilson for Lawrence of Arabia. I think people get... um, you know, rightfully so. They lavish all the praise on David Lean for his direction and for the cinematography uh, by um, Freddie A. Young and obviously Peter O'Toole's performance. You know, it's easy to get lost in those kind of discussions, but there's been a lot of movies with big production values and 70 millimeter filmmaking and lavish production design and all of that stuff. But it kind of wouldn't amount to a fucking hill of beans if you didn't have that script just giving you this complicated messianic saboteur figure that you could just keep talking about for hours on hours and hours and hours. And And it's amazing work. So another category where I got to go. It's a shame that this movie came out because (laughs) Lawrence of Arabia is so fucking great. But yeah. Robert Town, laying down the Lord's work in Chinatown, but Robert Bolton, Michael Wilson, doing fucking unbelievable work on Lawrence of Arabia—truly, just astounding work that I feel like really gets underappreciated because of the epic scale of the movie itself.
1: Yeah, I went with I went with um I went with King Kong. I, uh, as I kind of alluded to at the beginning, uh, when I saw the 2005 uh, Peter Jackson movie, and then went back to see the older versions and seeing how the similar beats were presented throughout the years and everything. The fact that it was timeless enough to sort of revisit or kind of just sort of one for one up and be like, okay, how do we tell this story now with today's technology and everything, it's it's hard not to appreciate King Kong for that. So um, yeah, that's where I went. Next up, we've got best editing. So one of the
0: things I was trying to think about with this, we covered a lot of epics this season. Again, 2001, Lawrence Bravia, things like that. But editing is also so crucial to comedy,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: especially silent comedy. Um, That's where it really comes into play. And I think in that regard, the movie that most needs great editing to work, and certainly has it, is Sherlock Jr. I mean, the sequence... The amount of work that has, the precision that has to go into making that bit work of him, you know, not just jumping into the screen, but skipping between the scenes. Like, yes, you can call that visual effects, but a lot of that is just the precision of the editing, right? Those physical gags don't exist in a vacuum for that movie. Earlier Keaton films, like The Three Ages and like his shorts, a lot of those could be chalked up to sketches they do in vaudeville, right? You could do that on a stage. You couldn't replicate Sherlock Jr. on a stage. You need that editing. You need that precision. So for me, Sherlock Jr. is my best editing winner. My runner-up is a very different kind of film where it's all about the editing, um, which is the Battle of San Pietro, where, I mean, just a... I mean, when you consider what Houston was able to do with that footage, and yes, I know he staged some of it, and blah, 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 but like you still uh, the if for nothing else but the cut from the soldiers marching to them digging graves it should it should be recognized just for that right uh, so my winner for editing a sherlock junior my runner up the battle of san pietro
2: uh, it's funny because battle of san pietro was on my uh, short list but it's not my one of my one and twos but i'm glad we were kind of thinking in similar ideas with that one um my my winner is envy codes for Lawrence of Arabia because that is a movie that does not feel like it's runtime at all. That is a fucking magic trick of editing. We saw it this year with Oppenheimer, a three hour movie that feels like it's 90 minutes. That is tough. Movies are as long as they need to be, but sometimes You get a bad editor or whatnot, and a movie is not edited correctly, and it feels longer than it is. We all have seen movies like that. Am I right, boys? So what she did on Lawrence of Arabia, astounding. And taking away all of that, all you got to say is the match cut. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's it. That's that's the only thing you need to say for the movie. Take away everything else I just said, which a lot of people do. Nobody listens to me. It's bad. <laughs> World would be better if they listened to me. But ignore everything else I just said. The match cut. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, John Wick 4 did it this year. The fact that an edit is still being referenced sixty years later tells you all you need to know about the editing job that Ann Coates did on that fucking movie. Again, tough, tough. My runner-up. I'm giving it to Adrian Fatan for, for Gigi. Delightful little movie. Musical. It's a comedy as well. So you got to have that sort of rhythm as well. Obviously, it's not what Chaplin or Buster Keaton were doing. But you, you got to have that sort of idea too. But then the music, musicality of everything. Uh, just great work. Got to give it a G. Runner-up to Gigi. But... Lawrence of Arabia, just just, just planting its four-hour dick on the table and saying, look upon you works in despair.
1: Fine, you cowards. You're not going to give it to the Battle of San Pietro? Then <laughs> I will. Then <laughs> I will, all right? This is the start, if I'm not mistaken, or at the very least, the uh, opening up of the conversation away from the sort of the romanticization of war and kind of coming into war and you know even at the time that houston is making this and the pushback he's getting to present some of these images and whatnot and the fact that he's held true to the convictions is something that i think looking at it now is hard to appreciate but i think once you like really in the time kind of like do that history and delve into it like can you know, it's it's very admirable so it's a it's a tough tough call to edit but i'm glad i'm, I'm glad it exists i'm glad it i'm glad it is what it is so we're giving it to the battle of san pietro so there you go gentlemen next up we've got best original song
0: gee i wonder where this is going now let's let's talk about this for a second
1: i mean do we do we want to just go one two three and just all say it out loud i mean
0: so (laughs) i so i'll say this um This, the reason this was really tough this year, because we only had like one musical and one movie with a title song. The reason this was tough is because last year, I don't know if anybody here remembers, (laughs) some folks decided to cheat.
1: Uh, No, 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 no. It's not cheating. I was, Mr. Natalie. I (laughs) was going by the letter of the law, sir. Last
0: year, the category and the year before that read best song. And Tom selected Night on Bald Mountain from Fantasia. And (laughs) Kyle selected The Godfather Theme. (laughs) So the word original got added to the categories this year.
1: And we're still going to mess it up probably, but we'll find out. So
0: my choice, uh, again, you know, in terms of, oh, what will it be? We covered one musical this season, right? Um, And again, there were other songs technically, but we covered one musical this season which is Gigi, and it also has some great songs. Um, I mean, this is the chance for me to expound on Maurice Chevalier because um, all of Gigi in a way hinges on I Remember It Well. Just a great sentimental comedy musical song. Um, it's a fun gag, right? The whole bit of him saying things that are incorrect and saying I Remember It Well. But, you know, The reason Chevalier was almost in my best supporting actor conversation is that incredible moment in that number where there's that line, you know, am I getting old? Oh, no, not you. The way he says, am I getting old, breaks your heart in half. He's so good in that song. He's so good in that. So that's my favorite number in the film by far. And my runner up is also from Gigi. Um, I Remember It Well as my favorite song. But uh, the, my runner-up is, I think what we decided is Tom's theme song. Uh, yeah. I'm so glad I'm not young anymore. <laughs> Which is Tom's ethos anytime Kyle discusses anything current in pop culture. To evoke yeah. a name, a fake name we've brought up many times. If Kyle comes on and goes, hey man, oh my god, the new Lil' Percocet song. And Tom just in his mind is going, I'm so glad I'm not young anymore. It's, it's perfect it's perfect off mic before we started this Tom was doing yet another variation of I'm so glad I'm not young anymore so I love that number I'm I'm doubling up on Chevalier but he's just so joyous in that my winner is I remember it well from Gigi and my runner-up is I'm so glad I'm not young anymore from Gigi Tom
2: listen it's another double shot of Chevalier but my my winner is thank heaven for little girls and my runner-up is, I'm glad I'm not young anymore. <laughs> um, listen, Chevalier, fucking pimp. I mean, <laughs> guy just lays the law down. You love you love that Peppy Le Pew motherfucker, like nobody's business. And the songs are great, and they are uh, thematically relevant to the movie. They're catchy, but they also are important. And they are complicated, because they aren't what... They appear to be on the on the surface. You could think, oh, thank heaven for little girls, what a creep. But there's that, you know, melancholic, regretful thing to it. And same thing with I'm glad I'm not young anymore. So I, I love the I love the depth that the songs bring. And I also love Maurice, Maurice Chevalier, so
1: <laughs> get it, King. <laughs> yeah, I mean you took my anecdote. I mean, I'm glad I'm not young anymore, you know. By the way, did you did you hear the new uh little peep project that came out last week, Tom. It's really no. good. I mean they've been they've been sitting on it for a couple of years, so you know I'm really glad his mom was able to drop that. So can they wait a few more
2: years until I'm finally dead or until <laughs> nine o'clock tonight?
1: <laughs> 15 minutes. Um... <laughs> two minutes to midnight. <laughs> All right, next. Best original score.
2: Kyle, do
0: you want to give yourself a clean take of that in case we have to edit it out?
1: No, I'm keeping that one. Okay.
0: Okay. Um, This is easy, uh, at least for the winner. I I hate to keep doing these declarative (laughs) things, but it's we really, this is a category where like three years running, there's been no argument. And I guess people could make an argument, but three years running, there's no competition because our first year, was a year where we had Star Wars. And there are other movies with great scores in that first year, but there's also fucking Star Wars, right? Yeah. Okay. And our second year, we had The Godfather. And there are other great scores of those 25 films, but it's the fucking Godfather score. And this season, we have a number of films with great scores, but it's the fucking Lawrence of Arabia score. There is no question... There is no doubt. It's the goddamn Lawrence of Arabia. It's the greatest score. It's so good. I mean, I think about it all the time. Other movies have ripped off that score left, right, and center. To this day, if you watch a movie set in the desert, its score is probably going to sound like Lawrence of Arabia. But then there's the little jaunty bit. How many times across various films did Steven Spielberg go to John Williams and say, You know, like Lawrence of Arabia. Maurice Jarre's score in that is incredible. I think of that song, uh, that opening, uh, you know, Overture song all the time. It's the best. My runner-up is King Kong. Because as we talked about on the episode, the idea of creating a score for a film like that, that is reactive to the scenes and all that, is very new when King Kong comes along. It's an innovator in that way. So in the same way that Tom's been talking a lot about Frankenstein and how it shapes the genre and shapes cinema, the score for King Kong does the the very same thing. So I think it has to be part of the conversation. So my runner-up is King Kong. My winner, Lawrence of Arabia for best score.
2: Uh, Save all your motherfuckers time. Same answer. Same runner, same runner-up. Really? Lawrence yeah, and King like, Kong for you and and, and and literally for the same fucking, like, reasons lawrence of arabia is just it's lawrence of arabia it's everything i mean it's indiana jones it's fucking every movie set in the desert and king kong for being you know the first and in this case the first and it's like great it's not just oh well it's the first but it's not that good but it you know it's important it's like no it's great it sets the tone it keeps you going it keeps you hooked it gets you propulsive it gets you sad when kong dies it's uh you know Lawrence of Arabia, and King Kong. Like, well, you know, if you don't agree with that, you will not feel the warmth of God's grace.
1: <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia reminded me that more movies need to have an overture at the beginning for about five or ten minutes, so you could just, you know, talk to your neighbor, see how everything is, just kind of get the vibe of what you're getting into. Like, it was pretty great. So, yeah, hard to uh, hard to beat Lawrence of Arabia. Next up we have got best costume design.
0: This one I found pretty challenging, honestly. I yeah. mean, you've got a lot of great costumes. Yeah. Uh, you know, in a lot of cases, when we say great costumes, we're dealing with period pieces. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess my winner is a period piece, but it gets the edge because uh, it has to invent an entire country. <laughs> this is something I talked about on the episode, which is the insane thing of The Prisoner of Zenda is that when you watch it and you look at those costumes, you go, well, yeah, of course, that's that's what, that looks like Ruritania. That doesn't exist. Ruritania is fake. It's from a book. <laughs> it could be anything, but the costumes feel so right and so clever in the little touches and the little variations it makes to kind of traditional European attire of the period that you feel like it's authentic Ruritania. Which, again, isn't real. So I have to give it to the costume design for Prisoner of Zenda. Not to mention the influence it has on Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and other things we talked about, but just incredible costume work. And my runner-up is the epitome of great gowns, beautiful gowns. uh, And look great in that gorgeous Technicolor, which is Gigi. Mm. I have to give it to Gigi. Those outfits Leslie Caron wears. The way everybody looks, I mean, for God's sake, I cannot, I mean, you know, count it as an accessory, count it as whatever. I don't think there's a movie out there today that more makes somebody want to own a parasol. But <laughs> when you watch Shishi and admit it, like everybody who watches Shishi, if you're a man, for a moment you go, I should get a high collar. I think I'd look good in a high collar. It's just incredible. A beautiful movie, great costumes. So my winner is The Prisoner of Zenda, but my runner-up is Gigi.
2: My winner is Gigi. Cecil Beaton's work on Gigi. Gorgeous movie. Really just, you know, on all fronts, a feast for the eyes. And the costume design, arguably one of the most important parts of this movie. You need to love the look of this movie, the look of this world, and Home Run. Knocked it out of the fucking park. And the sense uh, of the my... ass, too. Se- yeah sense of That's class that. all of that stuff the fact yeah like the fact that it's thematically appropriate too. just fantastic work um my runner-up is an anthea silbert's work for chinatown mm-hmm. uh period piece but it doesn't feel like a period piece it feels like it's just you're there in 1930s uh los angeles gorgeous movie on all fronts and the costume design you know you want to wear every single suit that jack wears uh, you wanna pick up a dame that's dressed up like Faye Dunaway. Uh you wanna run away from anybody that's dressed like John Huston. Um just a gorgeous movie. Um they were very close, but you gotta give it to Gigi just for the the lavish quality of it.
1: I actually went with the Prisoner of Zenda as well. For the Star Trek influence that you mentioned. They you know, we could have gone the period piece route, but I again just not knowing that influence before, as we navigated through it, it kind of always just stuck with my mind. So, yeah, I wanted to give that shout out to Prisoner of Zenda. Um, also, because I wanted to give—I'm not going to allude to it—but because I, but our next category, best art direction, it mm-hmm. was going to be my next. That this was going to be my runner-up, but I don't want to mention it. So, okay. go ahead.
0: Okay. Okay. Uh, best art direction. Another one that's. <sighs> I don't want to say it was tough insofar as, like, for a while, it was like, could I loop that in with Prisoner of Zenda and make my same argument, like, oh, you invented Ruritania. But it's... And, I mean, listen, you know, there's other things I want to give it to. uh, There's other things I want to show love to. But I think my winner has to be the Magnificent Ambersons. Because Mm. as cliche as it is... and God, I think most of us want to kill ourselves when somebody says that an inanimate object is like another character in the film. But if anything is... The Amberson home is a character in the film, right? We spent a lot of that episode talking about how hard it is to track the downward spiral of the uh, Amberson-Minifer family uh, because of the way the film was edited. But you can track it based on the art direction. That house is both opulent and haunting, depending on how Wells wants to film it, right? And that is a testament to that art direction. That set is created to be transformed, when times are good, it's beautiful. When times are bad, it's terrifying. Uh, just capturing that sense of period and of time. I mean, Lord knows they put enough work into that art direction. It better be the best. Um, runner-up, which is a very close runner-up, and I'm shocked it's not my winner because of how much I love this film, has to be 2001 A Space Odyssey. When we're talking about inventing things. You know, the invention of this future, these Pan Am space flights, The look of the, you know, the human zoo that he winds up in in the end, just the inventiveness of the design for this film. It's iconic. It's it's remarkable. Um, In fact, even now, I'm regretting not giving it the win, but I'm going to stick to my guns. Uh, My winner is Magnificent Ambersons, my runner up 2001 A Space Odyssey. And what an embarrassment of riches we can even (laughs) give give awards to those films or put them against each other.
2: Yeah, this was a tough one. A lot of good-looking movies this year. A lot of great art direction. Just great work all around. Um, just I gotta give this movie its roses again. Frankenstein, that gothic, old-school Universal horror look is just like catnip to me. And again, more than Dracula, this is the one that really kind of pushes it into a new strata where it just has this look and this feel and this tone that comes through so much from the lab, the, the, the Frankenstein mansion, the windmill, you know, it's just such a haunting Gothic, gorgeous movie. That's so, uh, you know, again, we just impact just the way so many movies and TV shows now are just so indebted to what they did on that movie. It, It just cannot be understated. So that's my winner, my runner up. I'm giving it to out of the past because I love that old school, new or you know, studio set look. And it's just one of the best looking movies of its genre of just cinema. It's astounding. Um, I know it's probably not the most obvious choice because like you said, there's 2001, you could go with Gigi. You wanna go even weirder, you could go with King Kong. Uh, but out of the past just uh I feel like a lot of the juice is from the look of that movie. Uh and it's great. So winner is Frankenstein, runner up out of the past.
1: Yet again helping you out here, Mike, because I am gonna give it to two thousand one a space odyssey. Um, I was thinking about giving it costume design for similar reasons. Again, being able to take sort of like the NASA influence and kind of evolve it from there. But instead, I just kind of wanted to focus more on the art direction of it, you know, if it wasn't going to go in costume design. So uh, it seemed like a no doubt. Plus, honestly, it was me going through this list and going, how have I gotten near the end and not given an award to 2001 A Space Odyssey? So like had to had to give it some some love somewhere so best art direction for 2001 a space odyssey which as i mentioned leads us to our final awards category which is best visual effects
0: it's funny kyle
1: you you mentioned
0: that feeling of how did i make it this far without giving anything to 2001 that's a feeling i have too but guess what there's a correct answer here (laughs) Uh, no, there's actually a couple of films that you could recognize in this manner, um, truthfully. But I got to give it to 2001. I think most of us got like Like, that is a movie that even the people that hate it, my father included, will go, visual effects are incredible. I mean, this is like the movie that people who got into visual effects got into visual effects over, right? You see it and just go, wow, I want to learn how to do that. I want to know how to do that. I went to the museum, of the moving image exhibit on it, and you're just amazed. It looks amazing now, but when you consider the things that they had to do to get some of those visuals, it's incredible. Um, the you know the Stargate sequence alone, just remarkable. Um, just, it's a dream. It's an absolute dream. It's a it's a perfect film, and I'm shocked I didn't give it more. But it has to be given visual effects. And my runner up, it's again an obvious answer it's King Kong. (laughs) The generation, before the generation that got inspired to do visual effects because of 2001 is the generation that got inspired because of King Kong. Those are the two movies that kind of shape a generation, right? Without King Kong, you don't get Ray Harryhausen and everybody else in stop motion. And without 2001, you don't get James Cameron. You don't get anybody else that's working kind of like the sci-fi effects space. So those two movies absolutely deserve that recognition. There's others I could If I, if it weren't, you know, Tom keeps doing this bit about, you know, I wish this movie wasn't in this year, you know, if it weren't for such and such, that's definitely true here because I'd love to shout out things like Gertie the Dinosaur or anything like that, but I got to give it to 2001 and King Kong. Just rack them up. Those are my winners.
2: Okay. So I figured Mike was going to do this. So I'm going to give my winning spot to King Kong. Um. I can feel good knowing that 2001 is going to get its laurels here. I'm sure Kyle will give it the same thing. So I'm going to give it to King Kong. Impact, all that, still looks amazing. You could still watch it and be blown away by how they did so many of that things. And again, just what it it led to is just astounding. The tendrils of this fucking sea beast is out of control. Um, So I'm going to go with a runner-up that is... Maybe a wild card, but I don't think it is. I'm giving it to Frankenstein simply for Karloff's monster design. We don't, it's, they had to figure it out. They didn't know how to do shit like that. It's, well, what do we do? How does he look? How do we make it so he can move and emote and all of this? And the second that son of a bitch comes out of the shadows and you get that close up of his scowl and the bolts on his neck and his flat top head, and ugh, it's you know you talk about two thousand one and King Kong. Oh, the people that saw this became influenced to make special effects. Same thing with Frankenstein. People that saw Frankenstein, they get they went, "I want to make monsters. I want to do this." Mm-hmm. Rick Baker all of those Dick Smith, all of those guys, Tom Savini, they saw this movie and they went, I got to do this. I got to throw some fucking latex in an oven and make some weird shit. And eh, arguably monster design has peaked in Frankenstein and, uh, everyone's chasing what they did back then. So King Kong's my winner, but you got to give some love to Frankenstein. Um, so I know everyone else is going to give 2001. It's love. So, and throw out some to the freaks in the world.
1: And I knew that both of you were going to pick what you did. The
0: fucking which is, going which, into this. Which is
1: <laughs> why I went even farther back as Mike alluded to and gave it to Gertie the dinosaur. Because you okay. don't have yeah. any sort of visual medium, whether it's, you know, the stop-motion thing of King Kong, animation in general the kind of, it almost feels like a passing of the torch from like the vaudevillian acts to kind of the silent films in general and stuff. Like, how can you not? But more importantly, because there were no Oscars then, I feel like this is the best way to kind of give love to something that couldn't be recognized in its time. So yeah, Gertie the Dinosaur, best visual effects for me. And with that, those are our
0: kind of superlatives for season three, now we're going to talk a little bit about what not a little bit we're going to talk fully not a little bit we're going to fully explain all of them what we submitted to the national film registry now the way this worked uh, obviously anyone can submit films to the national film registry and you're allowed to submit up to 50 but to allow for you know things from past seasons the way this worked is that the show uh submitted the 25 films that i selected and the 25 films that tom selected as our 50 because you could submit up to 50 then independently kyle submitted a number of the films not just that he had selected but films that we had submitted in previous seasons season one and season two that have not yet gotten into the registry it should be noted a number of films that we have submitted in season one and two have actually made their way into the national film registry uh Little Mermaid, Tongues Untied, Watermelon Woman. Um, uh, what am I forgetting one now? I'm forgetting one now, aren't I?
1: The a Clockwork Orange and Blues Brothers was a kind Rock, of Orange that weird. And Blues
0: Brothers, yes that was yeah. that was a weird one where that came out midway through the season. Um, Little Mermaid, Iron Man, Iron Man was another one uh, mm-hmm. of our submissions that made it in. So what you are about to hear, I'll read my 25 that were submitted. Tom will read his, and Kyle will let us know all of the others, including his submissions so that you guys have a sense of what our official sent to the Library of Congress submissions are, and we'll see come December, January, whenever the hell it is, we'll see if any of them made the cut. The films that I submitted this year are Deep Cover, The Bad Seed, Fruitvale Station, Way Down East, Flooding with Love for the Kid, Pretty Woman, The Pride of the Yankees, The Story of Temple Drake, Crimes and Misdemeanors, Crossfire, The Battle of Midway, The Tree of Life, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, Limelight, Streetwise, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, A Serious Man, The Story of the Animated Drawing, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Aladdin, Fanchon the Cricket, An American Tale, The Big Chill, Dirty Gertie from Harlem, USA, and The
2: Purple Rose of Cairo. And my 25 are 7, Stoker, Riot and Cell Block 11, Nightmare Alley, Greetings, Mask of the Red Death, Tombstone, Ocean's Eleven, Once Upon a Time in America, Champion, The Bourne Supremacy, Sunshine, King Kong 2005, Before Sunset, Dazed and Confused, Rob Zombie's Halloween, A Bronx Tale, The Iron Giant, The Man Who Would Be King, Kingdom of Heaven, Clueless, Belly, Written in the Wind, Petey Wheatstraw, and The In-Laws.
1: Previous registry picks from prior seasons. In Mike's corner, we have Boogie Nights, Hannah and Her Sisters, Technological Threat, the 1938 serial of The Lone Ranger, Moulin Rouge, Bamboozled, The Dixon Buffalo Bill films, Terms of Endearment, Blue Velvet, Street Fight, Batman 1989, Just Another Girl on the IRT, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Crazy Cat Bogologist, Thief, The 1910 Wizard of Oz, Huelga, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, The Trump Talk Citizen Kane Clip, The Kid Stays in the Picture, Annabelle's Serpentine Dance, Scarface. Inside Deep Throat, Fiddler on the Roof, Gimme Shelter, The Dover Boys at Pimento University, The Social Network, Dead Presidents, Juice, Jackass Number 2, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, American Dream, Rejected, Lady and the Tramp, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, The Children's Hour, Harvest of Shame, Possibly in Michigan, The Elephant Man, Flesh, Claudine, Up in Smoke, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. Tom's previous registry picks include Barton Fink, Rolling Thunder, Madawan, Mad on Fire, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, Blade, Casino, Fort Apache, They Live, South Park Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, Brick, Nixon, F for Fake, Twin Peaks Firewalk with Me, Failsafe, Crooklyn, The Blues Brothers, Magnolia, Fat City, Brazil, Blood Simple, The Hired Hand, The Age of Innocence, The Train, There Will Be Blood, Training Day, Bad Boys, Heat, Bram Stoker's Dracula, George Washington, The War Room, Here Come the Coeds, Sorcerer, Letters from Iwo Jima, The Outsiders, Smokey and the Bandit, The Bridges of Madison County, Blue Collar, 300, Breezy, Top Secret, Magnificent Obsession, Ms. 45, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, Cross of Iron, Boomerang, Mikey and Nikki, The Naked Gun from the Files of Police Squad, High Plains Drifter, and Open Range.
2: Here Come the Coeds is my um, crab people. (laughs) Now,
0: listeners, hang on. Before, Kyle, you're about to talk about your past submissions, Dr. Snyder's, your current submissions, but I just want to say to our listeners... You probably also felt what we felt, which is, oh, this is too much to make Kyle have to read. So I would love for you all to reach out. Our most ardent listeners, DM me, email the show, let us know. Next season, do you want us to just put this all on a website and not make Kyle read three seasons worth of submissions? Or is that fun for you? And do you want us to keep making him read them all one after the other? for longer and longer stretches of time. Just let us know. Let us know. You're missing out podcast at gmail.com. Now, Kyle, what did you submit of your past submissions, and what are your two submissions for this year, the one you did for Sherlock Jr., and your one traditional
1: wild card pick? So first off, shout out to uh, Dr. Snyder for submitting the 1968 film Head. It was the first guest to take us up on a submission, so we've uh, been submitting that on his behalf. So... Uh, in terms of my picks, uh, my prior picks have been Spider-Man, uh, Me at the Zoo, the first YouTube video, American Psycho, Super Bad. Uh, for this season, uh, if you all listened to last week's episode, I uh, nominated 8 Mile for the National Film Registry. And then there's this year, or I guess this pick, our wildcard pick, um, which actually was easier than the pick for last week. Um It was a movie that I kind of just wanted to have an immediate stake in uh, because this is the first year it's become eligible. It's what I, thinking back on my watching movies and how I've kind of grown and analyzed film as I've gotten older, the minute I feel like I felt the shift from, oh, movies are cool, big blockbuster events to really sort of feeling like I wanted to understand how all the pieces were coming together and how it was able to invoke an emotion or a feeling into me and to tackle themes from a director that I wasn't necessarily um, expecting to feel a lot of the things that I did. Um, If I'm not mistaken, technically, this is the second time we've nominated this director for the film registry, Mike has nominated him once. I have to double-check that and fact-check that. But regardless, um, my pick is from 2013. It's the movie Her. It's the first time for me... um, I mean, I know obviously Joaquin is known for Gladiator and everything, and I think that movie comes out just like I'm a 5 or 6 or anything, right? So this for me is my first joaquin phoenix movie to kind of really see what he ends up becoming what i end up appreciating his work over the years what kind of makes something like joker otherwise unbearable you know what would otherwise be unbearable like he like takes it home scarlett johansson being able to create a character literally just out of her voice and making it believable um i love every aspect of that film and how it um tackles and explores relationships and what intimacy looks like and it's just something that i've really thought about Navigate. It's something I think I've revisited at least once a year just to get all of the feels out. And, um, you know, selfishly, not selfishly, I just wanted to be able to stake my claims since it's the first year of eligibility and be like, yeah, I, I, I will fight to put this in. So my, my wild card for season three is her from 2013. I don't think I've submitted a Spike Jones. Is Jackass number two, not Spike Jones? Oh, he anything? doesn't direct
0: it, but he's involved in but it. But he doesn't direct it? Okay. No, well, there no, you go. Involved with him. I well, I, sorry, say, Kyle, I have to say, Kyle, I was really hoping because you're talking about oh, 2013. This is the first year it's eligible. I was really hoping off after all of that preamble, right? Of you yeah. being like, and I was just it was the first movie I remember coming out, and like this is what made me think about films, you know, in a different way and really trying to connect to it emotionally. Um, and this is the first year it's eligible. My pick is Despicable Me Too. You know something. I was like trying to think of like what 2013. What what could be a real out there thing that you could just be like, oh yeah, that's what really turned me on to film was Monsters University or something.
1: N- nope, a genuine heartfelt answer. So yes. sorry.
0: No, no. So that's that is all of that has been submitted, and uh, we will all find out together whether any of those picks got in. Uh, because for those of you listening for the first time. I don't know why you're listening to the finale for the very first time, but, you know, for those of you listening, uh, what's going to happen is in a couple months, the Library of Congress will release their 25 films they selected for the National Film Registry. Uh, And the day that happens, Tom and I will go on a social media hiatus to avoid finding out what they are until we get on mic and Kyle will read them all to us and we will react to them for the first time. If you've never listened to one of our Registry Reactions episodes uh, before, people seem to really enjoy them, so you can uh, go back into our archives and find them. I think a bunch of them are on our YouTube channel, too. Um, We have a lot of fun responding to them. But right now, what we're going to talk about is what will come, presumably, after that Registry episode, which will be the fourth season of our show. Uh, So for those of you who have stuck around, Let's talk about what we can all look forward to in Season 4. Guys, here's what we're going to be talking about, and then I've got a couple questions for you. So, in Season 4, we'll be discussing the Tracy Hepburn comedy, Adam's Rib, the not-at-all-controversial-but-very-influential-romantic-comedy, Annie Hall, the W.C. Fields film, The Bank Dick, Laurel and Hardy's short film, Big Business, King Vidor's World War I silent epic, The Big Parade. D.W. Griffith's controversial, if nothing else, uh, deeply racist, The Birth of a Nation, which I'm excited to talk about why that got in and who pushed for it to get in. It's a lot more interesting than you think, uh, the story behind its induction. Uh, We'll be talking about Bonnie and Clyde. We'll be talking about the musical Carmen Jones. I'm talking about Bruce Bailey's experimental short Castro Street, the influential film noir Detour, Stan Brakhage's landmark experimental series of films Dog Star Man, the classic Fred McMurray uh, noir film Double Indemnity, uh, the James Cagney musical Footlight Parade, Charlie Chaplin's The Gold Rush, Max Ophel's Letter from an Unknown Woman course, Morocco with the iconic Marlena Dietrich performance. We'll be talking about Robert Altman's Nashville. We'll be talking about Night of the Hunter, Stanley Kubrick's Paths of Glory, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, Sam Peckinpah's Ride the High Country. We'll be talking about the landmark documentary Salesman. We'll be talking about the blacklisted independent film Salt of the Earth. We'll be talking about the Looney Tunes in What's Opera Doc, and we'll be talking about oscar Micheaux's within our gates. So those are the 25 films we will be talking about, fellas. Out of those, how many roughly? How many of those would you say you have uh, you have seen of those? How many of those are you familiar with?
2: Uh, let me see.
0: Not ten.
1: Any?
0: You've seen ten. Tom, Kyle, three, three. Okay. So with that in mind, I will ask. What of the films that you have seen out of that list? What are you most excited to cover on the show? Which title?
2: Um, I'm gonna be my glutton self again, and as a tie, uh, I'm going with *Night of the Hunter* because that's just one of my favorite movies of all time. Mitchum, all of that. I literally have the love-hate finger tattoos finger tattooed on me. Um, I, I, you know, calling our shot now. Cinematography, art direction locked in the bag baby um and it's a movie one of my favorites that i am it's i I love it but i don't overwatch it because i want it to always be special i don't want to dilute it and dilute its power uh my my tie goes with ride the high country because i am a big Peck and Paw fan but since i watched it the first time i've watched uh more of his stuff i've seen everything he's done at this point except for Pac garrett and billy and the kid because that movie is hard to find um good film though I'm sure it's great. I've loved most of his stuff, um, but since then, like I said, I've seen more. I've rounded out his filmography. I've read a biography about him. Uh, I've got more into Randolph Scott. I've seen his stuff, uh, so you know, just more history, more history with Scott, Peck and Parr, the Western in general. Uh, I'm very excited to get into that movie and discuss that. So I'm very excited for those two.
1: Okay. Uh, it's, I mean, i mean excited, not necessarily, but it is the birth of a nation. That is a milestone we've talked about forever. I've alluded to in the show that part of my excitement about being a part of this show and everything came from a project that I, I did in a, film studies class and my mentor encouraged us to try to look at the birth of nation and the impact of that film and not try to focus on the obvious racial themes of it and it was challenging but it was very insightful and so i'm really glad that we're nearing that milestone um i'm glad we're gonna uh, do our due diligence and uh, honor that and you're right that the story about why it is it is in is very interesting i mentioned it to a co-worker today and they were very surprised so
0: and of the films that you haven't seen, uh,
2: what are you most intrigued by in season four? Well, what, what, what about you? What What are you most excited for? Oh, um, that you've seen.
0: That I've seen, I think. Hmm. I I think I'm most excited for Dog Star Man. Um. I mean, I love Nashville a lot. I love them, but. Uh. Or no, actually, take it back. I, I think it's either Dog Star Man or Castro Street because we're now getting into the kind of films that I've talked about for a while, which is purely experimental, right? I mean, Maya *Meshes of the afternoon we've covered, but like, these are the ones that, you know, Stan Brakhage is just overexposing film and, and painting on on strips of film. Bruce Bailey is overlaying images on each other in a, in a tribute to a street. Like, these are the ones that don't have a, a narrative. These are the ones that don't necessarily... They don't have easy talking points. And so I'm really excited to see what we do with that and and how we discuss those films and, and the places we go with it, you know? I mean, I've always talked about the reason I chose, you know, the National Film Registry, uh, or the reason I suggested the National Film Registry is it brings in films that don't make it on any other list. If we had done a show about the AFI list, we were never going to get to talk about Stan Brakhage, Right. We we're never going to talk about Bruce Bailey. We we're never going to talk about David Holmes and Sirey. So that's kind of what I'm most excited for.
2: So of the right, films. So
0: of the what films, I'm intrigued by seen. that I haven't
2: seen. Uh, again, Ty, I'm going to say without our, uh, within our gates, because after our talk uh, during the blood of Jesus, I want to see Oscar Michaud's stuff. So excited for that. And I want to see Detour, because I love film noir, and I want to see what is kind of ostensibly the first one. Uh, very excited for those two.
1: Glad you mentioned Dog Star Man, Mike, because that is indeed the most intrigued based on the title. And then as I looked up the summary, I went, sold. Done. Absolutely. Have Somebody no, a, I, like, there's no. a summary for it? It's like a little synopsis okay. of like, it's like a sentence, right? I imagine it's similar to the, the film yeah. registry being like, this is what the movie is. This is the sound a doggy makes.
2: <laughs> All right, well... Not many choices for you, but Mike, what are what do you got for this?
0: Salt of the Earth. Um, I don't want to get into it too much now on on Mike, but uh, Salt of the Earth is certainly a choice uh, the registry made because of its significance into how it came together, and how it uh, you know, I mean, we're dealing with we've kind of had to talk about the Hollywood blacklist in one sense or another on this show, but Salt of the Earth is going to be the one that we really have to confront it and take a look at not just representation on film, but, like, actively trying to counter uh, Hollywood and the government in one fell swoop. So I think that's going to make for a really interesting discussion. Sounds good to me, man. And with that, uh, we are done, officially done, with season three, we will be back on your feeds. Obviously, we're doing a reaction to the registry picks. We will do a reaction to the Academy Award nominations that we do every year. And then we will be back with season four. We're already talking to people. We're already getting our ducks in a row. So it hopefully will not be too long a wait until we are back. We just need a little break to recharge our batteries. Um, but in the meantime, um, you can check stuff out, not just on our podcast feed. You can check out the YouTube channel, I'm doing a lot of work on that, uploading full episodes. If you haven't watched Greed or The Italian with our feature-length commentary, I really uh, recommend it. It's a really fun way to see these films in another context. We've been putting up shorts. We've been putting up TikToks. and We'll be doing more of that in the time between seasons. Uh, Folks, if you are enjoying the show, especially if you've been listening to every episode, we've had a lot of people jump on board and we love it, um, let people know about the show. Uh, One of the downsides to doing a show in seasons and not putting it out every week for 52, you know, weeks a year is that sometimes between seasons, you know, we have a tough time retaining some folks. So please, please, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends, post some tweets, post it to I was trying to what are what are relevant social media sites now? Is it people still on Friendster? They still on Friendster? They're doing the MySpace
1: Oh, we're threading. They're doing it's, all threading. Threads, it's all about the baby. threads,
0: baby. On Foursquare? We posted on your Foursquare? Uh, your, your Google Circle or whatever it was? Are we, um,
2: are we, are we still doing Backpage? <laughs>
0: uh, but but seriously, guys, tell tell people about the show uh, if you can. If you want to tell us anything in the interim, if you have somebody you're like, oh, I'd love if you guys got this person on the show, or hey, I'd be really interested to hear your guys' take on this. You can always shoot us an email at you're missing out podcast at gmail.com. Hell, if we get enough questions, we'll do a mailbag episode or something in between the seasons. Um, and also, please write a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We've gotten some very nice reviews, and it helps people find the show. Kyle will constantly text us when we go up and down on the Apple podcast charts. Uh, it's a fun thing to follow. Um, but your reviews, your ratings absolutely help with that. We've been having a lot of fun doing this for three seasons and we've gotten a lot of great feedback from people about doing this. So we're going to keep doing it, but uh, you can help us keep those engines going uh, in between the seasons by just letting people know. We appreciate everyone that listened and uh, we look forward to doing this again in season four. And we hope that each and every one of you will join us next season here on You're
1: Missing Out. It's not nobility, it's not even relatability, it's
2: just believability.